In a sense, having, like I said, seen God's Word, now we get to hear it. Uh, if you turned to Ephesians 5 and you shut your Bible or closed your app, I'd like you to turn there again, please, to Ephesians chapter 5. If you use the Bible in the pew rack in front of you, it's page 978. And like Rich said, we can finally say another page. For weeks we've said, please turn to page 978. Now we can say page 979. We're making progress. We're moving right along. And uh, I do encourage you to turn there. It's too long a passage to put up on the screens, so we're going to be referring back to it. So please have that there in front of you. Paul here begins a new section that carries us deep into the next chapter, chapter 6. And it's his instructions to households, to families. And this first section, you might know, is on marriage. It's addressed to husbands and wives. You heard that as Rich read it. So we're beginning this new section, it's on marriage, and here's how I'm going to approach it. We're not going to talk about marriage, (laughs) at least not yet, and maybe not like you think. There is a lot here in verses 22 through 33, so we're going to spend two weeks on this, and this week we're not going to talk about human marriage, and let me try to tell you why. I came across a quote recently from the novelist Walker Percy, you might have heard of him. He said, and this is true, I think, you can get all A's and still flunk life. True? You can get all A's and still flunk life. And actually, that quote that I found was in reference to marriage and how you can know everything there is to know about marriage but flunk marriage. You can even know everything this passage says in Ephesians 5 about marriage. You can ace the test and flunk marriage. I'm guilty of it. If you're married, you're probably guilty of it as well. Because in our marriages, we don't live up to what we know. We might know the right answers, but we still at times turn to selfishness and flunk marriage. Because as much as this passage is about human marriage, and it is, It's as much or more about Jesus' marriage. Now, if you're new to Christianity, that might sound strange, because if you know anything about Jesus, you might think, I didn't know he had a wife. We'll talk more about that as we go. Let me say it this way. It's as much about Jesus' relationship with the church, even with an individual Christian, as it is about human marriages. And I think, I think you'll see this. This passage is some of the most profound and deep and moving information about Jesus' relationship with us that there is in the Bible. But here's the sad part. We miss it because we rush to talk about marriage. We rush to talk about husbands and wives. And in a sense, that's good because we want to know. If you're married, you know it can be hard. It can be wonderful, but it can be hard. And you think, I need to know how to do this. And so we rush for the answers. And if you know much about this next few verses that we'll talk about this week and next, you can know it can also be a very controversial topic, what this passage says about husbands and wives, at least in our day and age. And in our rush to talk about the controversy, we miss what it says about Jesus and the church, and we don't give that its due. We don't give what this passage says about Jesus and his love for the church its place. We miss that as we rush to talk about husbands and wives. And here's what happens when we don't give this content about Jesus and the church its due. We don't find our place in this story. 
Ephesians 5, here in this section, is, you might say, a love story. And you've got a place in it. You've got a character to play in this love story. But if you don't give it its due, you don't know your place in the story. And if you don't know your place in the story, you don't worship Jesus for your place in that story. And if you don't worship Him for it, then you're not changed by it. And if you're not changed by it, you can have all the right answers about marriage and flunk the test. So some of you might have come this morning or last week when I was sick thinking we talk about this passage and think, I want to hear what the controversy is about. I want the answers to the controversy. And we're not going to talk about that this week. We're going to talk about Jesus and the church to find your place in this love story. And you and I are surrounded by love stories, aren't we? It's in our books, it's in our movies, it's in our TV shows, and it's especially in our songs. I've got before me a lot of different types of people who listen to a lot of different types of music. But whatever type you listen to, whatever genre you like, from whatever age and place and time it came from, I can guarantee you most of them are about love. Most of them are about love songs. We're surrounded by love stories. Try to go a day even without hearing something about a love story. And here, right before us, is this amazing love story about Jesus and the church. Whatever your preconceived notions are about Jesus and the church, please try to lay those aside and just have open ears and an open heart about what this passage is love story, because I think it's the most mind-bending, soul-satisfying content you can find in the Bible. And my prayer is that we'd be able to give it its due this morning by asking four questions as we look at this passage. First, who's the bride? Second, who is the groom? Third, what does the groom do? And fourth, what does the bride do? So first, who is the bride? Now, in our typical love story, our movies, our shows, or whatever, you might picture a young man rushing in to excitedly tell his parents, I found the one. Mom and dad, I've found her, the girl I'm going to spend the rest of my life with. I'm so excited. And what is this girl like in these stories this young man is describing? She's beautiful. She's incredible. She's perfect, mom and dad. She's flawless. I can find nothing wrong with her. That's our kind of love story, but that's not the bride described in the passage that Rich read for us a few moments ago. That is not at all the bride described here. And throughout this passage, it can be hard to know if Paul, the man who wrote it, is describing husbands and wives on a human level or Jesus and his bride, the church. In verse 31, if you look there, Paul quotes from Genesis chapter 2, which is where the first marriage between Adam and Eve is described. And he says, a man will leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. Now, that's a description of human marriage. A man leaves father and mother and holds fast, that is, we'll talk more in a moment, makes a promise to his wife, and the two become one. So Paul quotes this, what is clearly about human marriage, and then he says in verse 32, but I'm talking about Christ in the church. Everything he's saying here refers, in other words, to Christ and the church, to Christ and His bride. And what kind of bride is she? Well, she's helpless. Verse 23, Jesus is the head of the church and is Himself its Savior. So how do I get helpless? 
If you have a savior, you need to be saved. If you need to be saved, you're helpless. If you need to be saved, there's something you cannot do for yourself that only someone else can do for you. This bride is helpless. She's weak. She's dependent on someone else, which maybe isn't that different than our love stories. You might have one or both parties in a love story that, that you know, needs some help, needs some, needs some assistance in getting over something. But we find out more about Jesus' bride here. Not only is she helpless, but she's guilty. She's guilty. Verse 25 tells us that Jesus gave himself up for her. And you might say, how does that tell me about her guilt? Well, this is language of atonement. And atonement is a religious-sounding word that means payment made for wrong done. Jesus gave himself up to make a payment for her wrong done. In other words, she is on her own guilty. She's helpless and she's guilty, which fits with the rest of Scripture, does it not, when you read about God's people, his bride, the church. You read that they are guilty of loving another husband. That's what the Bible calls our idolatry. When you and I put something in the place of God and find in it what we should only find in God, which is to say our worth, which is to say our worship, which is to say our satisfaction, then we are worshiping an idol. And the Bible says when you worship an idol, you're actually cheating on your husband. So Jesus' bride, the church, his people throughout all ages and times are guilty. We're helpless and we're guilty because those two things go together, of course. So this is not shaping up like a typical love story. This bride is not the typical bride. She's also, the Scripture tells us here, guilty and shamed, because verse 26, and 20, verse 26 and 27 tells us that she needed to be cleansed. Who needs to be cleansed? The dirty. And what do we think about people that are dirty? We step back. We don't move towards. We look and we go, ugh, that's not right. They need to be cleaned. Those who are dirty are undesirable. Those who are dirty, 27, Jesus eventually, and we'll, talk more, and we'll talk more about this, He takes away her spot, her wrinkle, and her blemish. But that means she has spot and wrinkle and blemish before He gets to her. You see, the bride is, in this story, unwanted and unattractive. When I do a wedding, when I officiate a wedding, I give lots of instructions. I go to the rehearsal and I tell the wedding party, stand here, stand there, walk now, walk out then. There's lots of instructions that the wedding party gets. And here's what I say at every wedding rehearsal and before the wedding, I say, where should you look? If you're in the wedding party, where should you look? And I say, you always look at who? The bride. From the time the doors open and she is revealed you look at the bride. So as she comes down the aisle, you're looking at her. As she comes up on the platform, you actually turn and look towards the bride because the bride wants to be seen. She's the center of the day, but this bride does not want to be seen. This bride would want to cover up. She is not the center of attention. She at least does not want to be because she's helpless, guilty, and shamed. This is not the typical bride. And who is it? Well, we've said it's the church, but let's be more specific. It's you and it's me. This is us. 
This is a description. This is finding our place in this love story. Whether you're married, whether you're a husband, a wife, whether you're single, whether you're old or young, new to the church, or been here a long time, you and I are this bride. We are helpless, guilty, and shamed. We're guilty, like we said, for putting things ahead of the Lord, for worshiping other things instead of worshiping Him. Therefore, because of that guilt, we're helpless, and therefore, we're also shamed. What are those places in your life that you want to cover up? You want to stay hidden. You don't want anyone to know about. Where are these realities true in your life? How can you literally connect with this story? How can you find your place in this character, in this love story? Because if you're not awake to it, if you're not alive to it, you'll not only flunk marriage if you're married, but you'll flunk life as well. So that's the first question, who's the bride? Let's talk now the second question, who is the groom? Who's the groom? Who's going to fall for this? If we took this bride and plugged her into a computer dating service, what sort of matches are we going to get? Well, in the case of Jesus we get the Son of God. We get this passage, verse 25, the head, or excuse me, verse 23, the head of the church. Jesus Christ is head of the church, the king of the church, because he is the Son of God. Paul, in other places in Scripture, calls Jesus the firstborn of all creation, which doesn't mean he was the first created. The Bible tells us Jesus has always existed as a member of the Trinity, but he's firstborn in the sense that he has an honored position. Jesus is the upper crust of the upper crust. The royalty and the kings and queens of this earth must look up to him. He is the firstborn. He is the honored one. This is the groom that goes with this bride in this love story. And it's not odd, if you think about it, that God would call himself a groom. He's been doing it throughout the Bible. If you're familiar with the Old Testament, this is not new. Paul didn't make this up out of nowhere. But God often calls himself the husband of his people and his people his wife in the Old Testament. Jesus himself called himself the bridegroom. In other words, Scripture is all one story. All 66 books go together to make one story, and you can describe this story from many different angles, and this one is an angle of a love story. The prince is coming to rescue his bride. What we've got so far is the original odd couple. This bride and this groom, you would not put them together on your own. The groom has gone and fallen in love with a girl from the wrong side of the tracks. She's a mess. He's perfect. She's helpless. He's her savior. She's guilty. He is perfectly righteous. She is shamed. He is glorious. She is unattractive. He is desirable. But I want you to see something so important if you're going to get this passage. It defines his headship, the fact he's head of the church. It defines it not so much by his nature that he is by what he does for the child. It defines it more by his nurture by what he does for the church, how he exercises his headship. It's more about what he does than who he is. It's more about his redemption than who he is by creation. And so let's look thirdly then, what does the groom do? What does the groom do? Well, like I said, this is not a new theme in Scripture. Paul didn't make this up. It's back in the Old Testament. So let me try to begin to answer this question of what does the groom do? 
by sharing with you a story from the Old Testament, from one of the prophets, a prophet named Hosea. Do you know this story? If you read the Old Testament books of prophecy, they usually start with God saying, prophet, here's a message, go and announce it. Go and give a verbal announcement of my truth. But sometimes the prophets, strangely to us in our time, were also called to act out their messages. You can read this in some of the prophets, but Hosea was called to act it out because God begins the book of Hosea not by saying, Hosea, here's an announcement, go and make it. He says, Hosea, go and get married. That's how it starts. And you think, okay, this, this is, you know, this might be good. We've got a wedding. Weddings are fun. But God says, Hosea, go and marry a prostitute. If that sounds strange, it's in the Bible. <laughs> Literally, go and marry a wife of whoredom is the word. Go and marry a whore and have babies with her. And you can read about the significance of the children's names on your own. But why is God, instead of giving Hosea an announcement, saying, go and act this out, marry a prostitute? God's saying, act out my reality. Because this is what it's like for me with my wife. This is what it's like for me. I love a woman and she's unfaithful. She's a prostitute. She takes what I give her and she used those very things to go and cheat on me in front of my face. And Hosea, it's going to happen to you. And here's what I want you to do, Hosea. Go and love her. Take her back. Pursue her. And then she's going to do it again. And here's what I want you to do, Hosea. Take her back. Love her. Pursue her. Because this is what I do. God says to him, go and love your wife again, even though she commits adultery with another lover. This will show that the Lord still loves Israel, the church, even though the people have turned to other gods and love to worship them. The Scripture tells us that God's a master and we're the servant, that He's the king and we're the subject. But it also tells us that He is a passionate lover, pursuing His love, His bride, who's unfaithful. And Hosea tells us that God speaks tenderly to us. He romances us. He allures us because he loves us. This is a picture of what the groom does, even in Ephesians 5. But Ephesians 5 makes it so much richer and more amazing because, yes, all over this passage we read the groom loves the bride. Jesus loves the church. That's what he does. And not with a friendship love. This is the Greek word agape, a sacrificial love. He loves her with a sacrificial love, this detestable bride who love by giving himself up for her. Again, language of atonement, payment for wrong done. This is where it takes the message of Hosea and goes even further. Hosea took her back. Jesus dies for this bride. It's like she comes before the judge for sins that she's committed. She has a debt, and it sins against her husband. And as she stands there, who's the judge but her husband? She could not expect mercy from this judge. She sinned not just in general, but against him. And the judge says, I will take the punishment. I will pay the debt. I will give myself up for her. For her. I will give myself up. We saw it back in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Paul told us to walk in love as you've been loved 
And you were loved by Jesus giving himself up. Paul loves these words about Jesus giving himself up. He talks about them also in Galatians 2, a verse many of you know. The life I live by, uh, or excuse me, the life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Paul is all the time connecting Jesus' love for us, his bride, with the fact he gave himself up. He proved it. He took the punishment that this wife deserved. He stepped in and loved this desperately flawed bride and paid the price for her. What else does he do? He cleanses us. Again, verse 26. Note the tense, having cleansed her. If you were a Christian, then your cleansing is a past tense fact. Sometimes people think of becoming a Christian as just changing a label. I'm just going to take on a new label. But it's, like we said before, an inner transformation of our guilt and our shame and our stain being washed and cleansed away. Some, some have wondered whether Paul's here actually referring to a traditional bridal bath in that day and time where the bride began her preparations that way. But it's not just an external bath, it's an internal bath. He takes this bride and cleanses her. He washes her, it says, with water. And praise God, that's our passage on a day where we celebrate baptism because, yes, that's a reference to baptism. When we become Christians, we're baptized, we're washed with water, but it's not a magical ceremony. It has to be with the Word, as Paul says here. Like 1 Peter says, you've been born again through the Word of God. He cleanses us with His Word. Why? So that He might sanctify us so that he might sanctify us. Verse 26, if you know much about the Bible, perhaps you know that the word sanctify means to take all those places in your life where sin has power over you, where it feels like you can't say no to it, and by faith it's a process of growth where you learn how to trust God and say no to sin. That's sanctification. And God's doing that in the life of every Christian. Whether we feel it or not, he promises he's doing it. And Jesus has cleansed you so that he might sanctify you, so that you, his bride, would no longer say yes to every other lover, but say yes to him. He sanctifies us. In other words, as someone said, God loves you as you are. He loves his bride as she is, but he loves you too much to leave you as you are. He's working on us. He's sanctifying us. He's making us attractive so that he might, the passage says, present us in splendor. Present you in splendor. You ever watch those makeover shows, those transformation shows, those before and after pictures? There's never been a before and after picture like this one. This bride before to what Jesus is making her into, creation will be stunned when Jesus is done with his bride. He is making her over. He's transforming us from the inside out because he wants everything about his bride. So all of your longing for glory, and you long for glory, you long to be presentable. You long for what this passage says Jesus does for us. This is the only place it can be resolved because it's the only place our shame can be taken and crushed by the one who became shame for us, taking that on himself. And then he nourishes and cherishes. Jesus nourishes and cherishes. For him to nourish you, that means he is knowing the diet that you need. 
He's taking care of. He's growing tenderly. He cherishes. Is there something you cherish? A memory, a possession, someone? That's a hint of how God feels, how Jesus feels for you, his bride. He nourishes and cherishes us. Why? Because we are his body. We are his body. We take care of our own bodies. Jesus takes care of his own body. Because if it was everything up to this point, the 31 and 32, where Paul quotes Jennifer shows, but he goes further in verses 31 and 32, where Paul quotes Genesis and says, Jesus actually makes this bride a promise. Again, in the Old Testament, the language of holding fast is covenant, promise, vow, language. Jesus left his father's throne above and came after his bride and made her a promise. And as a human husband and wife make promises and become one, so Jesus makes a promise and becomes one with you and the rest of the church. Has that not been one of the themes of Ephesians that we've seen over and over again? Union with God. We've talked about this series being Grace Unites, and the first thing Grace Unites is you and God. Someone said, God does not love us to the degree that we are like Christ, praise God, because we are this bride, but He loves us to the degree that we are in Christ, unified with Him. When I do a wedding, I tell the couple, when you make those vows, you will become as one as one can be in God's sight. And then you'll spend the rest of your life growing into that union. And that's what we also do with God. That's a picture of how He sanctifies us. You are one with Him despite your sin, despite cheating on Him. And yet, throughout your life, through sanctification, you become more and more experiencing of that union. But the main thing I want you to see as we talk about all these amazing things this groom does for his bride is I want you to see Jesus doesn't have to. He is by rights the head of the church. He has authority over her. This is his position. How does he use that authority? Does he use it for his own comfort? No. Does he use it for his own convenience? No. Does he use it in any kind of selfish way whatsoever? No. He uses his position utterly selflessly for the one he's sent to care for, even to the point of giving himself up so that he might present her perfect, so that he might not crush or stifle her, but so that she might grow and thrive in her union with him. Some of you know this story told by Matt Chandler, a pastor from Texas. He tells how in his freshman year of college, he's sitting in class, I imagine it being a big school, but there's a 26-year-old single mom sitting next to him. 19-year-old guy, 26-year-old single mom. She's trying to get her life, I guess, back on track. She's going back to school. And so Matt's a growing Christian. He wants other people to know about Jesus. He wants this young lady next to him to know about Jesus. And so he begins to befriend her. He learns that she has a little girl. He and his friends begin to go over to her place and serve her. They babysit the little girl so that she can go and take care of the things she in an extramarital affair with another man during that time. 
but they're loving her. They're sharing with her. They're helping her with her needs, telling her the truth. Well, one of his friends is a musician that's going to do a Christian concert. So he says, hey, to this young lady, why don't you come to the concert with us? And she says, okay. And there's a few hundred people there, maybe a thousand or something like that. And the concert's great. His friend does a great job. And then there's a talk afterwards. And he expects it to be a talk where the gospel of grace is shared. In some sense, like we've been talking about from this passage, because he wants his friend to hear it. But the man gets up to begin the talk, and he says, today I want to talk to you about sex. And he goes, uh-oh. Because he's not sure how this is going to land with his friend who doesn't know the Lord, who's actually having an affair with a married man. And the minister gets out a perfect single-stem red rose. You know this story? And he says, isn't this beautiful? It's delicate. It's gorgeous. And he throws it out in the crowd and says, pass it around. Everybody take the rose. Everybody feel the petals. Everybody smell it. Make sure it goes all the way around. And so people kind of forget about the rose. He says he begins to get angry, like legit mad, because this talk is the most guilt and shame-based fear approach to sex that he's ever heard. And he wants his friend to hear the good news of grace, but all it is is the bad news of condemnation for everything that she has done wrong. And then this man gets to the climax of the talk, and he says, where's my rose? And it comes back up, and what's the rose look like now? It's decimated. It's broken. It's bent. Petals are off. And this is the climax of his talk. He says, who wants this rose? Who would want this? And Matt said it's the most beautiful line. He wants to scream, Jesus! That's the whole point of the gospel. Jesus wants that battered rose, that used up rose. Yes, it's all the rose's fault. She's also sinned against. And Jesus says, I want that one. That's me. That's you. And he says, I'm going to remake that rose. I'm going to make it better than it was before. I'm going to present it in splendor without spot or wrinkle. That's what this passage is about. We rush to talk about husbands and wives, and we will. But if you don't have that in your heart, you've missed this passage, and you'll get marriage wrong, even if you get it right. So what does the bride do? What does the bride do? The last question, verse 24, she submits. It's the resolution of this beautiful love story. But you and I don't have a really good impression of the word submit, and so we miss the beautiful resolution of this love story. There's no doubt the word submit has negative connotations in our day and age. It sounds like losing. <laughs> the winner does not submit, the loser submits. The better one does not submit, the inferior one submits. It sounds like an involuntary, unwanted reaction, a forced one, a humiliating one, a response to oppression. But that's not the way the word is used here, as we're going to see through the rest of this sermon and then into next week as well. Because would any of those connotations of the word submit, would they work for this love story? Absolutely not. To submit is to respect, to follow, to go along. And that's what the bride would want to do for this groom. That's what the church is called to do with Jesus, to come underneath his care to come underneath his will and his purposes, to live them out in her life, to trust him enough 
to submit, to follow. Because Jesus, He doesn't just conquer us. He gives us new hearts. He makes us willing participants in His story, His story of redemption, this love story. And that's what's envisioned here, a voluntary, loving response of submission and respect to a husband that does not use his position for his own gain or comfort or convenience, but for the good of his wife, sacrificing himself for her glory, that she doesn't become less, she actually becomes more under his care. The church does not shrink under Jesus' care. She grows and thrives and expands. You become more who you were meant to be in the creation. That's what Jesus care for us do, and that's what we are submitting to. And I want you to see submission is a Christian virtue. I came across an article this week by Michael Kruger, who's the president of RTS in Charlotte, and he makes that great point. Submission is not a wife's virtue. It's not a female virtue. Submission is a Christian virtue that starts with Jesus. Jesus submits to the Father. He follows the Father's will and carries it out. And so all of us are called to submit. We saw it last week in verse 21 or two weeks ago. Submit to one another. Submit to the governing authorities. All of us have someone and something to submit to in our lives. Husbands, wives, male, female, young, old. Submission is a Christian virtue of following Christ. We submit to Jesus, the head of the church. We do that by submitting to the authorities in our life, by honoring one another, by honoring our groom's commands to us. We submit to him, not gritting our teeth, but in voluntary response to this amazing love that he's displayed for us. I want to ask you this morning, what's the hardest place for you to trust Jesus? What are the commands that are hardest to obey? What is the hardest place to submit to Jesus? In that place, trusting Him there, I want you to bring in all this good news about His love for you, about His giving Himself up for you, about His care of nourishing and cherishing you, and take all that and trust it, even in that hard place to obey. We submit to Him by trusting Him for salvation, by confessing our sins, by saying, yes, Jesus, you're sacrifice, paid the penalty so that I can be your bride. And then we also trust Him in obedience the same way. This place that's hard to obey, that's hard to submit, there is enough grace from your groom to trust and obey and submit and follow even in that place. That's the good news for us this morning. Let's pray. Father, we... stand only by your grace. And we don't just stand, we thrive. You don't shame us, you glorify us. You don't condemn us only, you also give us good news and make us as righteous as your son. We thank you that your son has loved this girl from the wrong side of the tracks and that he is busy restoring and renewing her along with all things. Father, we long for the day when your church is presented in splendor without spot, wrinkle, or any such blemish. Lord, I pray that in the meantime, we would trust it enough to be changed, to submit, and to follow you. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.